Hello, welcome to episode 39 of Born to Thrive with Jamie Lee. I'm your host and coach, Jamie Lee. Usually I start each podcast episode with a really chipper, I believe we are all born to thrive. I do. I really do. But I also recognize there are days when that can feel like a lie. There are days when I wake up filled with a lot of anxiety, self-doubt, guilt, shame, and it doesn't really feel like I am born to thrive. It feels more like I am born to crawl back to bed. Ever have one of those days? I think we all do. I think it's the human condition. But if I'm wrong, please let me know. And if you never have ever have days like that, I would love to hear about your life. Email me, jamie at jamieleecoach.com. I think we have days like that, and I think that's only human because our brains are hardwired to seek out comfort and pleasure and safety. Our brain, there's a part of our brain that has never evolved uh, from when we lived in caves and had to seek safety and comfort as if our life depended on it, as if our survival depended on it. And so, yeah, there are days when it can feel like our brains are working against us, not for us. And I think that's why mental health is so, so important. And on that topic, I have a very special guest. My guest is Dr. Maya Borghera. She is a clinical psychologist and founder of Stella Nova Psychology, a therapy group in downtown San Francisco that specializes in supporting professional women in their careers and in their personal lives. Her practice focuses on supporting women in their 20s through 40s who work in tech, business, and other industries, and the practice also strives to serve the needs of underrepresented groups like women of color. She has previously worked in a variety of settings, including university mental health, veterans affairs, rape crisis centers, and most recently, the health tech industry. This conversation is going to be really useful for all of us who struggle with anxiety. I do. (laughs) And I'm really interested Uh, and looking forward to learning about concrete ways we can help ourselves so that we can show up to brave uncomfortable conversations even when we have anxiety we can we can um, do something to not let anxiety stop us from being courageous and taking the lead so that we can thrive so without further ado Uh, Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Maya Borghera. Hello, Dr. Maya. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So um, first thing, I'd love to hear about a negotiation in your life or career that had the biggest impact for you? 
Sure. Um, I was thinking about this recently because a lot of my clients have been going through salary negotiation process recently. Um, and I actually came to learning uh, salary negotiations, I think a little bit late in the game um, in my last job, actually. Um, and previously, so, you know, being a psychologist, I was in school for many years. I was applying for internships and practicum positions, which just had a fixed salary. Um, after that, I was working in um, universities where they had, had a fixed salary and you just kind of got set on the pay schedule and went up the ladder, um, kind of step by step, everybody was in the same position. And then I transitioned to the private sector. I worked for um, a role at a mental health tech company, um, a startup. And my, so my first salary negotiation happened at that last job and it happened really out of the blue. I didn't know I was going into it. Mm. Um, I had thought that I was expecting to go through several steps before we got to the salary negotiation. I thought we we're going to, I was going to interview and then I'd go home and if they wanted me, they'd call me and, you know, talk to me about salary then. And that's not at all what happened. So I went in for the interview and on that day I met with a bunch of people and last I met with the CEO of this, of this tech startup. And he basically said, I had the job if I wanted it and asked what I wanted right then. And I was not at all prepared to answer that question. Mm. Um, so I was winging it completely, which maybe it was a good thing because I might have been a little anxious had I known I was going into a salary negotiation. So he basically asked you to name your salary. Did exactly. You- yeah. So what did exactly. So I dove in and I asked him, so I'd been doing a little bit of contract work with the company before I was interviewing for this job. And I asked him to match that hourly rate for my salary, which was a wild ask. It was way more than uh, anything I could have possibly expected for the job. It would have made me, you know, probably one of the most high paid people at the company. Um, And he very quickly did the math in his head and told me that wasn't going to happen. Um, And he came back to me with, okay, well, what is your current salary at your job? Um, Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was working at um, a university counseling center, so in college mental health, um, which is fun work, but it is not, it's notoriously not paid well. Um, So, you know, he asked me what my current salary was, um, and I answered truthfully, um, and uh, which was about $75,000 at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, uh, you know, they were thinking of offering me something around that number. Quick question. Yeah. Was this in California and how long ago was this? It was in California. Um, and let's see, that was around 2015. Okay. Yeah. Summer of 2015. So I know that there's laws now that you can't ask that question. That's right. That's right. Yes. Um, but at that time, it was not off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So started so off with that. Yeah. So maybe maybe I started off with a mistake. I was caught off guard. Um, so, you know, he said, OK, well, you know, that's around what we're looking to offer you. And so I countered that by telling him truthfully that I was also looking at other employment in the private sector at the time. Um, Even though this job was by far, you know, my first choice, I was looking at other jobs in that time. And I told him that I would be able to make closer to, you know, around $90,000 in other jobs that I was looking at. So that that $75,000 was not really a good point of comparison for me, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I was thinking about making financial decisions about my next job. Right. Um, 
yeah. And then where did you settle? So we settled on that. We settled on 90,000, um, which I was very happy about at the time. Um, I actually did end up renegotiating my salary about a year later um, yes. after learning. Yeah, I learned that my salary was still below what was considered median for a psychologist in, in this area here. It can vary quite a bit around the country, um, as many jobs do, but it was below median. So, so I was able to, to renegotiate that again. Great job. So yeah. what did you take away from that experience? What was your lesson? So my lesson was that it is a valuable thing always to be prepared to know and discuss your financial worth confidently. Um, even well though I wasn't expecting to have that conversation that day, I think um, I, I could have set myself up for uh, a, a better discussion. It ended up turning out well for me in the end. Um, but, you know, I, I think about it actually a lot like um, a, a, another concept that I discuss with my therapy clients a lot, which is setting boundaries. I tell them you can't set boundaries with other people until you have a clear idea of what you yourself need. And I think it's, it's similar with, with your salary. You can't negotiate a salary without having a firm understanding going into it of what you need and what you can accept. I couldn't agree more. I think how you negotiate one thing is how you negotiate other things in your life. And, you know, salary negotiation is just an extreme example of setting those boundaries. Like you're saying, this is the work I will do for X amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great lesson and great story. And, um, you know, earlier this week, I gave a webinar about how to anchor. And basically, you ended up anchoring at an extremely high place and mm -hmm. your um, to-be employer set a new anchor and then you effectively broke the extremely low anchor by countering saying you know I am also looking at other jobs and I'm looking to make $90,000 so well done this is mm -hmm. a great story thank you take away so as a psychologist I love to hear about how you approach and explain anxiety. Um, you know, for me, anxiety is, is something that I deal with on a daily basis. And I think anxiety is something that comes up when everyone, like a lot of people, when they think about negotiating, there's mm -hmm. anxiety there <laughs> in, their, in the top of their mind. So I'd love to hear uh, from your expert point of view um, what we can do to manage it. Sure, absolutely. So anxiety, as you've already said, it's a really common concern for people. It's actually, I think, the number one issue that my clients in my practice come to talk to me about. Um, and, you know, we don't all experience anxiety disorders, but virtually everybody experiences anxiety that comes up in certain situations. Um, and experiencing anxiety says nothing actually about your ability or your competence. Um, the clients that I work with in, particularly, uh, in particular are really high-functioning, intelligent women. They're accomplished and ambitious professional people. So uh, I, I just want to point that out to bust a little bit of the stigma around yeah, it right there. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and, and it can feel like the truth when your anxiety is saying things like oh you can't do it blah 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 you know I, I call oh it my goodness, voice of yes. the itty bitty shooty committee <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that yes yeah. that's exactly true um and we do tend we tend to think of anxiety as an emotion 
mm-hmm. which it absolutely is. Um, but it's also a really complex series of physiological responses that we have um, in our bodies whenever we are anticipating something uh to be potentially threatening or potentially dangerous. Um, And our body doesn't really distinguish between threats like messing up at an interview and being embarrassed or something that's actually physically dangerous, like you're getting mugged, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So when we're headed into a scary, a scary feeling negotiation, um, we're actually in our bodies experiencing kind of a low level or sometimes a full blown fight or flight response. And actually, we now know that that fight or flight response that that most people are familiar with is actually fight, flight, or freeze. So if you've ever experienced freezing up when you're in a moment of anxiety, feeling like you can't think or you can't talk or your brain is just on pause. Um, Or crawling back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so, so in your body, when you're anxious, what types of feelings do you usually have? When I'm feeling anxious, um, I feel nervous. I feel um, like advanced. I feel shame in advance. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That anticipate that anticipation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I have this uh, anxiety um, around public speaking, even though I do it all the time, the anxiety still mm-hmm. comes up every single time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say it's that, um, like the heart is beating really fast. Like you talked about the flight or, uh, flight or fight response. Mm-hmm. There's a temptation to be like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So your heart races, you get that maybe sometimes when I've been really anxious, I feel a little bit short of breath. Like yeah. I can't, especially when I'm talking, like I can't really catch my breath. Mm-hmm. Um, some, a lot of people feel it as stomach upset. So, you know, nausea or just cramps in your stomach or, you know, that, that butterfly feeling. That's right. That can be really, That's right. really common. Um, and you know, I, I like to point out, you're, you're saying you get a little bit of uh, anxiety every time you go to speak. A little bit of anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Mm. Um, a little bit of anxiety can actually be helpful per- for performance. If we're not at all anxious, maybe we don't prepare as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little, bit, a little bit of anxiety can make you go the extra mile as you're getting ready. Mm-hmm. Um, in the moment, it can improve your alertness and it can give you a boost of energy too. Um, so a little bit of anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing. Too high anxiety in the moment can really be paralyzing. And, um, you know, particularly uh, if you've ever had a panic attack, um, you know, that's a really kind of acute high level of anxiety that you really can't function at all. So there's a wide range of what anxiety can look like, right? Right. Um, So when I'm working with a client, my goal, I always tell them at the beginning to kind of set expectations around this and normalize that anxiety is an okay emotion to have. My goal is never to eliminate anxiety completely or make anxiety the enemy. Hmm. It's to turn the volume down so that your anxiety is not up at a 10. You want your anxiety maybe to to be at a three or, or even a four. That's a level that most of us can still function perfectly well at. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, in an 
in an earlier episode, I was having a conversation with a career coach and she made the distinction between confidence and courage. And I think there is this kind of a myth about the very confident person who shows up with zero anxiety, zero fear. But mm-hmm. in, in reality, there's always going to be a little bit of anxiety. And in fact, you know, what I'm hearing is that it actually can serve a really great purpose in helping you mm-hmm. to, you know, prepare, you know, be alert, do your best. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Anxiety is, you know, like all of our emotions, actually, it's an evolved response. And it's evolved in humans, because it helps us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about your health, uh, if you had zero anxiety, you probably wouldn't do routine things like, you know, getting your your pap smear or your physical. Um, I'm out in California, so the example that always comes to mind is like a little bit of anxiety is going to uh, get you to build build your earthquake kit so that you're prepared, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, what if you feel like you're teetering on the edge of like eight or nine right Mm -hmm. before you engage in a high stakes conversation like salary negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think salary negotiation is definitely one of those situations that can trigger that level of anxiety for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, So in that moment, I think doing something to ground yourself can be really helpful. Um, I really love one thing that's worked that works for me and that I actually pull out as a tool um, when I'm finding my anxiety creeping up any anywhere from I get all nervous on planes uh, when there's turbulence I do it when when I'm on a turbulent airplane ride I do it before I go to the dentist and I, I, I do it before I you know get on stage or go up to to do speaking as well um, it's uh, something called box breathing have you heard of it before yes I have heard of it before Yeah. So the idea behind it is that, you know, when you're in a state of anxiety, your your nervous system is really overactivated. So it's a way to calm down your nervous system. Um, And uh, it's really simple. And the idea is just that you are taking some nice, slow breaths, but you're doing it in a really specific way. It's called box breathing um, because you are going to inhale to a count of four. Hold that breath for a count of four, exhale for a count of four, and hold the breath out for a count of four. Mm. And um, when I do it, I find that even doing that for like four or five cycles of breath can be enough to really dramatically change how I'm feeling. Um, It sounds simple, and it is simple actually, Um, but you know, it's, it's really effective. And so I love having a tool like that before, you know, going into something that I'm, that I know will be challenging. I read about it in Brene Brown's book and I, I remember doing it, uh, doing the box, box breathing as I was walking to work (laughs) because the, the thought of going into work, into the office was creating anxiety for me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the nicest things about it is it's a tool that you can literally do anytime, anywhere. Um, I've done it during meetings before. Like nobody, nobody has to know you're doing this thing to manage your anxiety. It's really kind of a stealth anxiety management tool. Yeah. And I love that it's something that is so easy and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just breathing, but breathing in a very conscious and deep way. 
mm-hmm. intentional way. Yeah, that's very powerful. Yeah. And I remember uh, hearing Brene Brown actually talking about that. Um, she learned about it from uh, people in the military. They actually are trained to do it. They don't call it box breathing. They call it tactical breathing. Hmm. But they do it to, um, as, as a way to center themselves, you know, even in uh, a combat situation. Um, so it's really everywhere from um, the military to, to yoga studios. Wow. Wow. And I know you recently gave a talk at Bullish Conference about yes. self-compassion. for Absolutely. And I would love to hear from you. What, what is the connection there? Um, sure, sure. So I have become a little bit of an evangelist about uh, self-compassion with the ambitious professional women that I work with. Um, and before I get into the anxiety connection, you know, just to tell you a little bit about self-compassion and what it, what it is and how I think about it. Um, the reason that uh, I ended up developing this talk, which I've had the opportunity to give in a few different places for, at this point, is that I, I was noticing this thread coming up again and again with my clients um, and also myself for that matter, um, this tendency to be really hard on ourselves and um, even really accomplished, competent, um, ambitious women uh, were struggling with really impossible standards for themselves, harsh self-criticism, um, stuff that we impose on the people in our lives that we care about. Um, so, for an, uh, to give an example of this, you could imagine watching your best friend just blow a presentation that she's worked really hard on for the past week, you know, the past six weeks. Everything's gone wrong. She's tripped up. She's forgotten things. She's uh, given misinformation. Most of us in that situation, we would really deeply cringe for her, right? It would be painful to watch. But we'd also comfort her. We'd also remind her that she's still awesome, that she'll get the next one. We might actually even also help her figure out what actions she needs to take to move forward, right? Maybe she needs more practice. Mm -hmm. Maybe she needs to talk to a therapist about her performance anxiety that might be getting in the way, right? Mm -hmm. What we generally don't do with our best friend who's messed up in this way is we generally don't call her a loser. We generally don't tell her she's never going to amount to anything or that she's worthless or that she's nothing but an embarrassment. Uh, oh, good one. Right? Yes. Right. Hit it on the head um, right there. <laughs> but this thing, the thing is that when the tables are turned, when it's us that, that's made the mistake, it's exactly what we do. We tell ourselves we're idiots, we're losers, we're stupid. We obsess over the situation and we can play it over and over again in our heads. Yep. Been there, done um, that. <laughs> yes. I think, you know, it's really relatable. When I, when I did this talk for the first time in San Francisco, I was actually just like kind of putting it out there. I put some tickets up on Eventbrite. I'm like, I don't know if people will come to this, but worth giving it a try. You know, I was just, just starting to build my, my practice. Yeah. It sold out three days. I didn't do any paid marketing. I just posted it in, in a few um, Facebook groups and it resonated so deeply because it's something that I think is so, so very common. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically Self-compassion is the practice of treating ourselves with the same care and kindness that we would treat somebody we loved. It doesn't mean that we're coddling, but we are supporting and encouraging and offering empathy and kindness to ourselves, even and especially when we've messed up. 
Yes. So powerful. Yeah. So bringing it back to your original question about anxiety, what does this all have to do uh, with anxiety? Well, one thing is that you can imagine that your self-critic can cause a ton of anxiety. It's obviously anxiety provoking to be hearing you're not smart enough for this. You absolutely can't mess this up or everybody thinks you're an idiot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anybody would be anxious here, hearing somebody telling it, telling us that, uh, whether it was somebody outside or, or ourselves telling us that same message. So when we learn how to quiet down that, that inner critic and calm that inner critic, it can really be helpful for um, soothing our anxiety. And I think the, the first step is just recognize that this is the voice of the inner critic. It's not like mm-hmm. me, like, you know, we exactly. tend to over-identify with our own thoughts. So being able to make that distinction, oh, that's just the inner critic. That's just like the part of my brain that mm-hmm. to be like that. It's, it, nothing's actually gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you were saying before about anxiety, how when you're in the middle of it, it just feels true. It feels like all your anxious thoughts are true. I think we can have that same kind of distortion around our inner critic that because it's being harsh, it's the unblemished objective truth. And Mm -hmm. that if we think anything else, we're just deluding ourselves. But really having um, a negative bias on how we look at ourselves is just as harmful, if not more harmful than having an overly positive. um, Yeah. And I, I love the self-compassionate way because, you know, compassion means to just like to be with, right? And so, you know, it, it takes being able to recognize and acknowledge it, not like push it away or, or reject it, but like, okay, I have these thoughts in my head. These are just thoughts. And for that reason, I always advise my clients, um, what I do all the time is write down the stressful thoughts, the anxious thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to amount to anything. You didn't do a good job or whatever, right? You're a loser. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you were noticing that you were anxious, either, you know, some people are more tuned in with their body. It's easier for them to kind of first recognize they're feeling anxious because they notice their heart's racing and their palms are sweating and they're feeling a little shaky. Other people are really heady and might notice that they're really just ruminating on an anxious thought. Um, whatever, whatever your personal kind of red flags are that, oh, this, this sounds like anxiety. This sounds like my self-critic. Um, it's a signal to check in with yourself and take a pause yes. um, and see what you need in that moment. Yeah. Self-compassion is about founding, figuring out what is good and helpful for you in the moment. Excellent. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have one more question about mm-hmm. this. So, sure. you know, I know that anxious people, anxious people who are very ambitious, we also tend to burn ourselves out because Absolutely. we listen to that inner critic that says, you got to do and do and do and do and do more. Right? <laughs> so I'm curious to hear, what are some ways, some strategies that you um, advise your clients uh, take to avoid burnout? Yeah. So, so burnout is a really uh, specific type of exhaustion. Mm. Um, it's one that we get a mental and physical exhaustion when we're under chronic stress. And um, that seems, seems to be a theme of, in our conversation today, but we don't always realize that we're in the middle of it. 
Hmm. Um, so the first step is to be able to recognize that that's happening for you. Um, it's something for me as a psychologist, I've had to work out because, um, I think, you know, those of us who are in caregiving types of professions, um, can burn out and experience compassion fatigue at really high rates. So, you know, signs that I look for to recognize when I'm burnt out is if I'm feeling tired all the time, even when I'm getting enough sleep, I still have that deep, like bone deep exhaustion. Mm. Um, Another sign that can come up is feeling cynical or pessimistic or maybe even resentful about some kind of project that you really care about, something that you're working on. Um, if I find myself getting unusually annoyed at my clients, that's a sign to me that I'm, I'm burnt out. Mm. Um, and another one, you know, that is, I think, particularly uh, relevant to those of us who identify as being ambitious professional women is we can lose confidence in ourselves and also really find it hard to enjoy our successes. We end up discounting that. So that's step one, recognizing that you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next step is figuring out what needs to change in the structure of your day-to-day life. Um, a lot of people kind of jump from, oh, I'm burned out. I need to take a vacation. And a vacation can be a wonderful first step, but just taking a vacation does not solve burnout. I think we've all had the experience of going on vacation and it is lovely and it's heavenly for a week. And you think, oh, I'm going to go back to work and I'm never going to be stressed again. I'm just going to imagine myself back on this beach. And you get back to work and your emails have piled up and maybe your boss is still a jerk or maybe there's still, uh, you know, too much work to get through in your work day and you're there till 9 p.m. Um, and nothing's changed and you're right back to square one and maybe even more underwater now that you're back from the vacation. So take a vacation. I'm not anti-vacation, but you need to think about what what needs to change in a bigger way in your life. Um, are you, yeah, are you making space for your self-care basics? Do you have enough time for food? Are you getting routine medical care? Are you making time to get enough sleep to be fully rested? Not just enough to function, but to be rested. Are you exercising? Are you getting social time? All of those things are, are non-negotiables. Hmm. Um, And maybe we need to set boundaries in our life or delegate some of our responsibilities if we're not able to make time for that. You're giving me a lot to think about here. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. What stands out for you? It's, um, you know, thinking bigger. It's not just about quick fixes, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, structurally, how are you designing your career? How are you operating in your life? Um, I think those are the bigger questions that you're helping to raise for me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can be helpful to think about what is your personal mission statement or what are your core values? What really matters to you in your life? And are you getting to engage with that stuff in your normal day to day? Yeah. If the answer is you're not, you're not doing that much, then if you want to reduce your burnout, you also need to find a way to fit things you're passionate about into your life. Um, and it seems a little counterintuitive, right? Add something new in when you're already burnt out. But those are the things that energize us. We need rest for energy, but we also need kind of emotional energy that we get from doing things that are really meaningful. I think for me, it's just like the constant thinking about work. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a, you know, I'm a psychologist, but I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm building a new business and I'm in the process of hiring employees and we're getting ready to move into a new office and there's always something new on the table. And that has been something that's a struggle, you know, putting work down at the end of the day. Yeah. It's a mental Um, hygiene. Exactly. Exactly. We need to take care of our mental health as much as our physical health. I love that, you know, even those of us who work with people and help other people uh, like you and me, it, it, you know, we still got to do our own work. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think it can even be uh, harder sometimes when we, uh, one, of, one of the downsides to being a person who loves to help other people and who really, you know, gets joy out of um, being able to help people reach their goals is we can lose sight of our own. Right. Um, and there has to be that balance because, um, you know, the, the saying you, you can't, um, you can't uh, pour from an empty cup. Exactly. This has been such a valuable conversa- conversation and I'm really, um, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot of insights for me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Where can people yeah, go to learn more about you and the work that you do? Absolutely. So uh, you can go to my private practice uh, website, which is Stella Nova Women, W-O-M-E-N.com. And that is the the website for uh, my therapy practice in downtown San Francisco, where I focus on serving the needs of professional women uh, to care for their own mental and emotional health. Um, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Stella Nova Women. Okay. Dr. Maya, thanks again for your valuable time. Um, I'm, I have some things to follow up now <laughs> after okay. this conversation. And um, Great. I look forward to hearing more about the wonderful work that you do with StellaNovaWomen.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank it was really you. wonderful talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.